when we finish the Torah, and we start again, the new one, Bereshis. We start over from the beginning. So that'll be exciting. I guess Thursday night, we'll be able to do a class on Bereshis because we're going to read the full Parsha of Bereshis on Saturday. So we only have two days or three days to learn the Parsha of Bereshis, which is a very big Parsha, a significant Parsha both in volume and in a lot of stuff happens. I think about a thousand years happens. So I'll start with Elohim. I'll share with you uh, some Sukkot insights because they're just so awesome. And it turns out... I studied this year for the first time, really, you know, re realizing this concept so clearly that the sukkah, which I'm in right now, that sukkot, the sukkot, they, the strange things happen in the sukkah. You know, you've been to the haunted houses or you hear about them. If you press on this wall, suddenly the window in the attic opens and a bird flies in, you know, or those, those, um, those, um, you know, I think there was one in, in Knott's Berry Farm in, in Buena Gardens. Buena, Buena Gardens? Yeah, down in, in uh, L.A. area where they had a place where it seems like things are going up, but they're really going down. So in the Sukkah, strange things happen. That would be the title of my article if I ever wrote an article about it. Strange things that happen in the Sukkah that are unusual. It's like you entered a different domain, different different sphere. And what are they? So one of them has to do with possession and, and ownership. So this is kind of technical, but it's very interesting. Um, we have two mitzvahs in, in Sukkot. We've got the Lulav and Etrog, the four species that we take together. And we have the, the mitzvah of, of sitting in the sukkah, eating, drinking, studying Torah, hanging out, even sleeping for some. And regarding both of them, the Torah says it should be, you shall take it for yourself. So it says you shall take for yourself these four species, which the Talmud understands to mean, or tradition in science to mean, it has to be yours. You have to own it. Meaning if you borrowed somebody's lulav, especially on the first day of Sukkot, which where it says, you know, take for yourself on the first day, that's the, the biblical obligation, you would not be in compliance with the code if you borrowed the lulav from somebody because it says take for yourself, meaning it has to be owned by you. Now, that doesn't mean you have to buy it. Somebody might have given you as a gift. It's still yours. Even if you're standing in shul and you say, whoops, I forgot to buy lulav and asterisk this year, or back in the day when it was very difficult to procure a lulav and esrog. It was quite expensive. Most people could not afford a lulav and esrog. Today's a luxury that everybody can buy an esrog because of the, you know, it's just more available and it's a lot cheaper and people are, are more affluent these days. Back in the day, it wasn't uncommon for a town to only have one lulav and esrog for the whole town. In fact, they would, um, they would, um, 
they would chip in. The town would chip in to buy one lulav and etrog, and everybody shared it. That's that's all they could do. Or if you were very wealthy, maybe you had one. If you're a famous rebbe, maybe you one of your wealthy Hasidim would buy one for you. But otherwise, it was uh, pretty common that that most people did not have it. And there's many stories about people who there's a story about somebody who sold his home so he could buy a lulav and etrog one year at the end towards the end of his life. L'chaim, l'chaim. So you're standing in shul and you don't have an eleven esrog, but you want to do the mitzvah. The guy next to you has one. It's the first day of Sukkot. What do you do? Can't borrow it from him. It would be useless. So what he does is he gives it to you as a gift on the condition that you're giving, going to give it back to him when you're done. So, yes, Carrie. It sounds a little bit like chumets. Sometimes people like temporarily sell their chumets on uh, Pesach. That's exactly right. And I use that as an example where the Torah takes ownership very seriously. It's not just a social construct, kind of a, a, a fictitious idea of, you know, we're going to say this belongs to you and that belongs to me is real. In other words, there is... Um, the Torah says it's real. You either own it or you don't own it. And if you own it, it really is yours. If you legally own it, it's yours. If you don't legally own it, it's not yours, even if it's in your possession. So Torah takes that very seriously. And I've said in the past that, you know, if you had a, a ownerometer by Torah law, you'd be able to, you know, put the, like you have the thermometer for the meat to see if it's cooked enough. You put it into the object and it would beep at who's the owner. Like it's, it's real. There's a real spiritual connection between you and your ob- and the things that you own is real. So excellent example, Carrie, regarding the selling of the chametz. People think, oh, this is some kind of an artifice. It's going kind to of a joke. It's a trick. What do you mean? I got the, the chametz in my cabinet. I sold it. No, but if it's legally sold and, and that contract would hold up in court, in the Jewish court or in, in the uh, secular court, then legally that chametz does not belong to you. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an artifice. It's not a trick. It's real. It's not a, uh, a legal fiction. It's real. So similarly here, when I give you my lulav and I say, here's a gift, just give it back to me when you're done, please. It's called the matana almanat lahachzir. A gift on the condition that you give it back. Because I don't want you to keep it. So I can give you as a conditional gift, but as long as you have it, it's yours. But if I just lend it to you, say, here, yeah, sure, you can buy a little it, it doesn't qualify. So on the first day of Sukkot, if you're ever in that situation, make sure you don't borrow the lulav. Make sure you get it as a gift. So that's we learned that from the verse, lachem you shall take for yourself, lachem, the word lacha, lacha means to you, lacha means to you, plural. Take for yourselves, it's got to be yours. Now, regarding Sukkot, the other great mitzvah of this holiday, it also uses this word, not lachem, but it says lacha in the singular. It says, Chaga Sukkot lacha. You shall make for yourself a holiday of Sukkot. You shall make for yourself booth, Sukkot. Lacha for you, it's the same word, which you would think means you got to own it. You can't borrow it. It's got to be yours. The Talmud says, the Talmud actually has a debate between Rabbi Eliezer and the sages. Rabbi Eliezer says, 
It's the same as lulav. Just as the lulav has to be yours, you can't borrow it. The sukkah has to be yours. You can't borrow it. And the sages, however, say, no, 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 no. These are two different mitzvahs, and they have two different sets of laws. And so the Talmud says, that according to the sages, according to the sages, the lulav has to be yours. You can't borrow it. But the, the sukkah, you could borrow a sukkah. Meaning, if I just come into your sukkah, or you come into my sukkah, I don't have to say, I'm gifting you this sukkah on the condition you give it back to me when you're done. No, we could all we could share the same sukkah. And the Talmud uses this expression, Kol Yisrael ru'im achat, that all of Israel can theoretically sit or dwell or do the mitzvah of sukkah in the same sukkah. And that's only possible, as Rashi explains, if everybody is borrowing it because it can't be owned by the whole Jewish people, that's impossible. Um, you know, for everyone to have one penny uh, partnership in this sukkah, it's got to be that we're borrowing it from, from each other or from somebody. It's got to be owned by, by somebody or some group, and the other people are borrowing it in their use. And therefore, um, therefore, you do, you do not have to own the sukkah. It doesn't have to be given to you as a gift. You can you can borrow it. The Talmud derives it from a verse. The verse says, All of Israel will dwell in the sukkot, which hints to the, this idea that all can dwell in the same sukkah, theoretically. And that's that's the uh, kind of the technical proof for it. But the question rem remains, why do we have this difference between the lulav and etrog, which you must own and you cannot borrow, it's called a lulav shi'ula. A lulav that's been borrowed is pasul, is, is not, does not qualify. Whereas a borrowed sukkah is kosher. Anybody have any uh, divine inspiration of why that might be? Ooh, a Hasidic tune. Maybe that'll give you the answer. See, it worked. Carrie's got it already. Uh, I'm not sure. This is a wild guess. But, you know, uh, maybe not everyone is a landowner. And maybe not everyone can have a space where they can section off a part of it for a booth. And so, I mean, it, it's, it's um, sort of... Uh, it would make people who aren't rich feel like they can't do this mitzvah. I like it. Okay, so Carrie's giving us a practical reason why God and the Torah would make a differentiation. Very good. Anybody else? Going once, going twice. Sold to the rabbi. Oh, Matt, you're unmuted. Go ahead. Does it have anything to do with Egypt? Or are wandering. Everything has to do with Egypt. <laughs> Go ahead. So we're wandering in the desert, and that's the Sukkot. Is 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 the Sukkot is is uh, is commemorating and making it reminding us of the fact that we left Egypt, and in that Exodus from Egypt, we were in a pretty hot desert, and God provided us with shade through the clouds of glory. So, does it have something to do with that? I think it does, but I think so when you really get down to it.
Let me give you the Hasidic interpretation. We'll see if it has to do with that. Okay. Hasidic interpretation is this, the rabbi's interpretation. I want to get a little technical just for a minute, just for a second. There's a question. There's a question, and, and it could be it's a, a debate between Rashi and Tosafot. It seems that it's a, it's a debate between Rashi and Tosafot. What is the Talmud saying when it says you don't have to own it? You, you can borrow a sukkah. What does that mean? What does that mean? One way to look at it, and this, seem, this is the way Tosafot seems to look at it, is that the Torah does not requ- require it to be yours. Even though it says, you shall make these sukkot for you. But with this other verse saying that all Jews can sit in the same sukkah, the Torah is telling you, forget about this concept of it has to be yours in regards to the sukkah. That's a lulav idea. Don't mix it with the sukkah. The sukkah, you don't have to own, and therefore you can borrow it because it doesn't have to be yours. That's one way to look at it. The Torah is telling you the whole law of it has to be yours. So why does it mean, the, Torah, the Talmud does ask, so what does it mean it shall be yours, l'cha, in the context of Sukkot? And the Talmud says, well, it can't be stolen. You can't steal sukkah. That would be disqualified. But if you borrowed it, if you were a partner, then that would be kosher. But according to this way of looking at it, which is Tosfot, the French scholars, the descendants of Rashi, um, the Torah does not require you to own, it, to own it, and therefore borrowing is okay. That's one way to look at it. Rashi, it seems, and there's a Lavush, and Alter Rebbe, and Shulchan Aruch, the way he looks at it, he says, no. He says, the Torah does require it to be yours. It says, Lacha. And the reason that borrowing is okay is because borrowing, in the words of the Alter Rebbe in, in his Code of Jewish Law, borrowing is as if it's yours, mamash, literally. It's as if literally it's yours. And even though you borrowed it, it's literally as if it's yours. Now, this raises, you know, the Tosafot method is more is easier to understand. Torah is saying you don't need to own it. But Rashi is saying, and Alter Rebbe is saying, you own it if you borrowed it. That raises a big question. Well, if you own it, if you borrowed it, then why with the lulav, you can't borrow it? If, if borrowing is considered ownership, you own the, the borrower is an owner, then why do we differentiate with the lulav and say um, that if you borrow the lulav, it's not kosher? You've got to own it. You have to receive it as a gift. You hear the question? It sounds a lot like giving it giving it and then you give it back, you're kind of borrowing it for a short time and giving it back. It sounds very similar to me. It does sound very similar, but legally, legally, if you're a borrower, if you're a borrower, you're, it's not yours. You're borrowing, you're borrowing the use of it and so forth. Whereas if I give it as a gift, it's completely yours. Okay. okay. So here is now we're going to, that was all legal, legal, uh, Preamble. Now we're going to get to the heart of the matter, the mystical element of it. And as I told you, strange things happen in the sukkah. What's a strange thing? Borrowing, not yours, your borrower. But in but in in sukkah, when you enter the the, the domain of sukkah, you just went into a different different uh, different zone. You went into a different zone where borrowing is considered ownership. You see? 
told you, strange things happen in the sukkah. Now, why is this? Why is it that the with the Luv and Esrog, you're borrowing, it's not yours, but the sukkah is, is yours? The answer is, these two mitzvahs, the four species, the four kinds, and sukkah both have a similar... Um, uh, motif which is unity particularly Jewish unity right the four kinds you got the lulav and the esrog they re represent different types of people we put them all together and we say we're united we're not complete without each other if we're missing one of the species the whole thing is off you can't do the mitzvah you can't say the bracha even if you're missing the willows that have no taste and they have no, no, no flavor, no fruit. If you're missing the willows, forget about it. You can have the nicest esterig in the world you paid $1,000 for. It smells beautiful. It looks beautiful. Worthless without all the other three. So the four species are about unity, Jewish unity. Sorry, Matt, you were raising your hand. All right, before I forgot, does that have anything to do with... Um... I believe I read in Mishnah Torah one time about tefillah and minions that it's um, it's it's actually um, a good thing to have somebody that's not observant in that circle, or or maybe I'm getting it wrong, or yeah, yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, so there is something the dynamic. Something in the uh, in the in the in the incense that the incense has a bad and that we that they offered in the temple that we offered in the temple that had a foul smell to it. And the reason for that is that represented the uh, the wicked among the Jewish people, and everyone has to be represented in the incense. And similarly, you know, the the, the prayers are commemorate the sacrifices and the incense. So yes, a tzibur, the the word for for congregation in Hebrew is tzibur, and and tzibur is a acronym for tzaddikim, the righteous, benonim, the intermediates, and reshaim, the wicked. So that makes up. I was talking to a, a yeshiva boy, kid who went to yeshiva, and I was asking him about his fellow students and so forth. I said, you have some of the you have the guy who's like in the study hall all day and night. Like whenever you go in there, he's there studying. He said, yeah, we got that guy. I said, good. Every yeshiva has got one of those. Um, do you have the guy who's like never there? Like he's always sneaking out and trying not to be. Yep, we got that one too. I said, it's good. You have a real yeshiva. That's it. You need everybody in the yeshiva. You need them all. So that's a great point, Matt. And this, yes, this is a similar concept. We need we, Takes it takes all four to make a, a Jewish people. So, 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 so the four species represents this idea of Jewish unity. Interesting, Hasidus emphasizes that each of the four species is itself a symbol of unity. Why the palm branch? It's only kosher if it's still, um, you know, you could. It, it's still kind of compacted. It's still, you know, all the leaves have not yet spread out. Or once this, uh, the Rambam describes it, once they've spread out and those leaves have become rigid, even if you're going to tie them together, it's not kosher. They have to be kaf kafut. Kafut. They have to be tied together by, uh, naturally. 
or if they've started, you can you, you can you can tie them up. Now uh, the S rog is on the is on the tree for throughout the seasons, all four seasons. So he unites all the seasons. Uh, the hadas, the the myrtle, the, the leaves have to grow out from from a one singular point, so they're they're united in the the point of where the leaves the three leaves grow out of. Um, they're called braided in in the Torah, and then the arava, the willow, they grow together. These trees grow grow closer with in brotherhood. So that's the idea of, of oneness. Now the sukkah, the sukkah also represents the idea of oneness, as it says, all Jews are theoretically able to sit and dwell in the same sukkah, and just Physically, you know, we, we invite people to our sukkah, it, cre- it creates Jewish unity, and everybody is sitting in the same mitzvah, you know, we're all doing the mitzvah, kind of, you know, we're all wearing tefillin and shul, we're all wearing different tefillin, but we all come into a sukkah together, we're all kind of, we're doing the same mitzvah in a sense, it's the same sukkah, so they, they and, and, and it encloses us, it, it encompasses us, um, and so they both represent the idea of unity, however, however, the sukkah represents a higher level of unity than the four species. And what that is, if you think of scientifically, of kind of like stem cells, where when you go back to the root of things, the further back you go, the closer to the roots you get, the more unity there is. There's less differentiation and disintegration and separation. And so when you go back deep, deep into the soul, the origin of the souls there's that oneness that transcends the differentiation the, dif- the differences the lulav and etrog and hadas and rovas everything is already different this is a lulav this is an etrog this is a myrtle this is a willow and what we do is despite the fact that they're all different we bring them together but they all remain distinct we don't blend it grind it up blend it into a smoothie that type of unity. That's a different type of unity. Everything remains distinct. And so, so Hasidus explains, the Rebbe explains, at the level of sukkah, there's such, the unity is so powerful, it's so strong, so real, that the, the distances between people is, that gap is, 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 is closed. And so even if I just borrow something from my fellow, it can be considered mine. Because in that world, in the world of the sukkah, there's, there's no separation. There's no separation. And so even if I borrow it, yes, it's mine. Even though it, be, it belongs to somebody else, it doesn't matter. Our unity is so powerful, so potent, that just borrowing it is enough to say that, yes, it's fully my own. Yes, I own it. Not like the Tosavot to say, you don't need ownership when it comes to the sukkah. No, you need ownership. And yet, the very thing that's not considered ownership outside of the sukkah is considered ownership inside of the sukkah. Strange things happen in the sukkah. The legal world is just thrown upside down. The attorneys don't know what to do in the sukkah. It's like, we don't understand this. We don't get it. We can't explain it, but it's real. It's happening. So that's number one. And, and uh, I was thinking about it is, if we have this amazing unity that happens in the sukkah, then why do we have the lower level of unity of the lulav and esra, which are distinct entities bringing brought together? Why do we have that? The answer is, I think, we know from Hasidus that the lulav and etrog, um, the lulav kind of acts like an, atten- an antenna, if you think of it visually, to 
internalize, to draw down, so to speak, this very lofty, sublime reality of the Sukkot into us. In other words, we don't live in that Sukkot world. We live in the world of the Lulav and Etra where there is differentiation, where there is that distinct, where people are different from us. And there is a little bit of a challenge to bring us together. Right? So what we're doing with the Lulav and Etra, we're drawing on, and, and you're supposed to do, by the way, you're supposed to do the Lulav and Etra. If possible, you're supposed to do it in a Sukkah. That's the ideal and best way to do it. You could do it anywhere. You could do it in the shul. You could do it outside. You could do it in front of Trader Joe's. Chabad guy catches you outside. Are you Jewish? Did you shank the lulav today? You could do it there too. But the ideal way to do it is in a sukkah. Why? Because the partially what's happening with the lulav and esrog is you're drawing forth and internalizing. You kind of you bring it up. You bring it to your heart. And you're bringing in that that uh, very lofty state of unity and all the other great things that the sukkah represents, not just this idea of unity, but everything the sukkah represents into into your into your world, which is a world of differentiation. And that's why you need to have to have both. So I'll pause there and welcome comments and questions, even though I've got another very strange thing that the sukkah does. Comments and questions are welcome. Lahai. We want to welcome Brad and Sean, who came in after we did our initial welcome. Happy Sukkot to you. And to you, Rabbi. Thank you. Sean, where are you calling in from? Bloomington, Indiana. Woo! I hope to get to my, uh, continue my Chabad trip um, in Bloomington, like I was able to in West Lafayette. Unbelievable. Fun stories to tell when I see you. You're doing the Chabad road trip. The Chabad road trip. Chabad hopping. <laughs> it's kind of fun. We met neat, really great people. Beautiful. And, and the rabbis in, uh, in West Lafayette, uh, two sons, first son named Mendel, second son named Yaakov. Classic. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right. Okay, I'm going to give you the second one. Let's see if I can do it before nine and and finish before 9 p.m. You've heard me say that strange things happen with the sukkah. Here's another very strange thing. How many walls does a sukkah require? Feel free to just blurt it out. Three. We've got somebody saying three. Anybody want to argue just for the sake of arguing? I think it depends. It depends. Huh? It depends. <laughs> it depends. huh? A, I don't know. I read three somewhere. You read three. Carrie, you want to contradict yourself and go with another answer? Are you going to stick with three? We count you, even though you're unmuted. Is is the ceiling a wall? No. Okay. All right. The floor. Carrie, would you you you? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I think I thought the. Can you hear me now? Yeah. I thought I thought the requirement was. Um, 
you have to have sort of three semi walls. Ah, there you go. There has to be some sort of a, a separation, but you can still see through it. You can even move through it, but uh, it has to be. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Excellent. Sec sectioning off. So you see, first he said three walls. Now he said it doesn't have to be, you know, like <laughs> reminds me of uh, the Jackie Mason. He says that a Jew could never be a good mugger because he would, you couldn't say, you know, Give me all your money or your life, because he would say, "You don't have to give me all of it. Give me some now. We can talk about it later. Can make a can make a deal." Um, so yes, it's three walls, but there's another answer that sometimes people will say is two walls and a little bit. That's technically what it is: two walls and a little bit. So the Rumbam in his description of it, he says, "Think of a letter hey. What does a letter hey look like?" There's a horizontal line on top, a vertical line going down, kind of like an L that's an L um, on its side, an L on its side. And then it has like a little foot. That's the hay, right? A line, a line, and then a foot. He says technically a sukkah could be like that. It could have two walls. And then that little foot, as long as it's within three hand breaths. You're all familiar with a hand breath, right? It's three inches, four inches. Um, as long as it's in three handbreaths of one of those L panels, and it itself is a handbreadth thick, I mean wide, it's kosher. It's a kosher sukkah. Right? So Carrie first said three walls, but now I just told you that the letter hey is also a kosher sukkah. So what do you think about that? Now here too, you can... You can split hairs, which is a great Talmudic pastime. Split hairs and and ask and look at it in two different ways. This is like Talmud is Talmudic study, Torah study is like all about seeing things in two different ways, right? Excellent for like eight fifty seven p.m. at night when your brain is really sharp. So, the first way to look at it is the way Carrie said it, which is well, you know what? I'm going to go with the first, the second way. That, no, it doesn't need three walls. It needs two walls and a little bit. Because that's what the Ramam says. Two walls and one hand breath. That's what, it's got to be within three hand breaths. But it's two walls and a little bit. But Carrie said it has to be three walls. And Carrie knows what he's talking about. So maybe what's happening is... Okay, so here are the two ways of looking at it. One is that the Torah requires you to have, you don't need three walls. You just need two walls in a little bit. The other way to look at it is, no, the Torah requires you to have three walls. But if you have that hand breath, that hay, that little leg of the hay, there's a hand breath wide, and you have it within three hand breaths of one of the walls, that's considered that you have three walls. Now I know where Jackie Mason gets his humor. <laughs> That's considered they have three walls. Now, how do we know which one it is? So one of the proofs that here is that where do we have, you know, the, the requirement to have partitions, where partitions make a difference in another area of Jewish law is on Shabbat. On Shabbat, you're not allowed to take things from one domain to another. So if something is enclosed with partitions, that's like a private domain. You can't take it out to the street. Um, or conversely, you could 
transport things within this enclosed area. Now, is a, a sukkah that has this quasi wall, right? That you look and you say, that's not a wall, but Ramam said it is because it's a hay. And it's called, of course, from the Talmud. On a regular Shabbat that's not Sukkot, we look at that wall, quote unquote. I'm using the square scare quotes. And you say, this is not a wall. This is a piece of, of wood. That's a, of, of, there's no wall over here. And you'd be right. For the laws of Shabbat, that is not a wall that has different, uh, different rules. But on the Shabbat of Sukkot, when we look at that same quote-unquote wall, we say it's a wall. But how is it a wall? Well, for the laws of Sukkot, it's a wall. So now for laws of Shabbat, it's also on this Shabbat, it's going to be a wall. But you look at me and you say, one second, how is this a wall? It's not a wall. I told you at the beginning of the class, strange things happen with the sukkah. Strange things happen. We already saw that the legal world is, is turned on its head. All the attorneys, they, they don't know what to do with this, with this sukkah. Ownership is, is, is going out of whack. Borrowing is, is, is yours. So now, now we're saying that something that doesn't look like a wall is a wall. Now here's the, the, the amazing Hasidic idea behind it. What is a letter hey? You may be familiar that mystically the letter hey, what it represents, or what does it have? It has two panels that are complete and they're connected to each other. And then there's this like foot that's kind of floating on its own. What does that mean mystically? And all the letters of, of the alphabet have very deep significance. God, when God created the world, God created the world, there's thought, speech, and action, right? So the top panel is thought, the side is, is, is speech, and then the little foot is the action. So the thought and the speech is God desiring, thinking about creating the world. Speech is creating the world with speech. And then the action is, here's this world kind of floating, the, the physical reality of the world is floating. And it's distinct and separate from the other two panels. Why? Because when you look at this world, there's something called tzimtzum, which means the hiding of, of the divine presence. You don't see the connection between the source of it, that this thing is constantly being created by God. You think this thing is on its own, has no connection to anything else. You learn to go to San Francisco. You see all these tall buildings. You look at the, the mountains, the oceans, everything. Like, you know, it's all take it for granted that this thing is, is, is self-propelled, self-sustaining. And it looks separate. That's its that's symptom. You think that there, there is a gap. There, there's a gap. It looks like there's a gap between the foot of the hay and the walls of the hay. What happens on Sukkot? What happens in the Sukkah? Strange things happen. That separation, that concealment, poof, disappears. And the separation of that foot of the hay to the other wall doesn't exist. The, the source of the world and the world itself, there's no separation between them. You could, you could see that the world is, yes, the thought and speech of God. That's what the sukkah represents, with the, the tzimtzum being removed. And now you see there is no gap there. So on Sukkot, when that, that aspect of divinity is revealed, and in the sukkah itself, yes, that, that wall with a big hole in it is a complete wall, even for the laws of Shabbat, because strange things happen 
with the sukkah. One final idea. The sukkah is supposed to be a temporary dwelling. Temporary. If your walls are, are 30 feet high, it's not kosher. On the other hand, we're supposed to make it our permanent dwelling for these seven days. In order to achieve true meaning in life, in order to get to what's really permanent, you have to view the world as temporary. The sukkah is a model of the world. If you view the, the, the world, the sukkah of the world, as temporary, as transient, as constantly being created by God, it doesn't have any of its, it's really ayin, it's really nothingness being brought into being constantly, and that it's only, the only meaning in it, the only, the only permanence in it is the divine desire for it, that God really wants this world and he wants, he wants this world to, to be a, a divine dwelling, a divine garden. That's the real substance of the world. If you, the sukkah is only kosher if it's temporary. Our life is only kosher if we recognize that all the structures are temporary and that's when we can have real permanence. Strange things happen in the sukkah. L'chaim. I'm fully nullified. Boom. <laughs> Matt no longer exists. Just for today. It runs kind of parallel to, to the physical being temporary. It's always temporary. Throughout all, throughout all the universe, the physical is temporary. It's the spiritual that's permanent. And that's kind of where you're... Exactly. That is exactly. You know, there's a custom, Chabad doesn't have this custom, but among many Jews, the custom to read the book of Exiliastes at Kohelet on Sukkot. Somebody asked me in the shul, why would we read Exiliastes on Sukkot? Sukkot is supposed to be the most joyous holiday. Exiliastes is, if you've ever read it, it's kind of a downer. It's all about how the, the, the world, the material world is vanity of vanities. And it turns out, there's two ways to understand it. One is, well, actually the sages were worried that people get carried away with the rejoicing. And so they, they, you know, they put a, um, you know, weight on the other side to, to everybody calm down, relax, read Exiliastes, we need to calm you down. But really what's happening is, what we're saying is, is actually fits beautifully with the whole concept of Sukkot, that the more you recognize that the material world is not where it's at, and the ego is not where it's at. The more you realize that, the more you allow the real joy, permanent joy, permanence to come into your life. And so the reading of Kohelet is not a contradiction at all to Sukkot. It's actually right, is the very message of this temporary hut that we dwell in. We dwell in this temporary hut. The idea is that Sukkot really is the beginning of the year. We think of Rosh Hashanah as the beginning of the year. But really, until Yom Kippur, we're still dealing with baggage from the previous year because we're doing repentance for 10 days. So we're obviously still dealing with the previous year and the mistakes of the past. So it's really Sukkot where we start anew and we're saying, this is what life is really all about. This is our, our, our kind of mission statement for the year, which is recognizing that the material world on its own is just temporary. It doesn't have any value on its own. The only value that it has is God's desire to have a dwelling place in this world. 
and that's what that's what we're going to be that's what we're going to be doing for this year is is making true meaning of this world through the Torah and the mitzvahs that we're going to study and we're going to do. And that's how we that's how we start off this year with this very powerful image of this temporary hut because it requires the remembering of that this is temporary. Also in Jewish history, we started with a temporary situation in the desert. In order to get to permanence of dwelling in the land, we had to go through that state of, uh, of temporariness. Does it also talk about, I'm trying to extend it here, um, that reminder that yes, there are physical things and they're temporary, let us realize that, but also uh, very specifically keep in mind that our focus is on something higher and that the fact that we dwell in this for eight days allows us to allow the, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but the energy of that, the power of that to build and grow inside you and show in the world, like come out. And if you do it for a short period, 10 minutes or something, it's not as powerful as being aware of it over this eight day period and allowing that, that greater thing to come through. Because a lot many times you have to get your mental thinking out of the way to allow that energy, to allow that power to come through. I can think about it and say, okay, I thought about it and down, you know, like check out, check the box, but it seems like that. And then, and then the other thing I was, I'm sorry, let it sink. You got to marinate in it. Yeah. It's sometimes you don't, get the beauty of it until, you know, like, uh, you know, just any Shabbat too, by the end of Shabbat, it's like you've, you've transformed into what Shabbat represents. And with this, you're doing the same. That's a great, great point. Thank you, Sean. Also, I think this is um, excellent point, Sean. This is kind of interesting how we're starting Torah That was deep. It got too deep. So it was being it's being censored by uh, Eric Yuan. Where your thoughts we literally transformed. Yeah, where your thoughts are, all of you is. You know, and so this is the beginning of the year. And we start in a in a uh, less concealed realm. You know, like you said, Rabbi, the Hashem is perpetually choosing creation all day long you know kind of like holding back the dam so we can exist and communicate and pray and um you know want to unify with him more that can't happen if we're completely nullified right it's like putting a match up to the sun so exactly thank you matt so I'll leave you with one more idea at the risk of people falling asleep over here because it's already late at night. And uh, Sean, you, you, you kind of triggered this uh, memory for me of, of uh, 
this idea that I started off actually talking about how this this night, the nights of Sukkot, they would have these incredible celebrations at the temple, the base of Migdash, Jerusalem. And it was the the highest, the, the deepest spiritual scholars and mystics that would juggle. They would juggle as part of the celebration of the pouring of the water. And Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, I think specifically, was juggling eight torches. And throughout the Talmud, you find that there's a lot of juggling going on. The rabbis are juggling. And it's like, couldn't they hire a juggler from Craigslist? Like for, you know, 200 bucks, I'll come and do the birthday party. Do we really need the greatest rabbis of the time to be juggling knives and cups of wine, Abaye and Shmuel and Levi? The greatest, greatest names in Talmud are jugglers. And at this very holy event, what, what is this concept of juggling? And, if, and the Rebbe explained once that the whole concept of juggling is, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, you need downtime, right? You need downtime. But really, we need uptime. And that's prayer. That's Torah study. That's our uptime. And that's throwing the, the torch, the light up into the air, high up, because we need those moments of transcendence. However, that torch has to come down. We cannot become detached from this temporariness, right? From this, from this world. We live in this world of temporariness. And we need, to, that, we need that torch to come back down, meaning that we have to be engaged with this temporariness, with this material world. We cannot escape from it. We need our moments of uptime to re replenish and charge the batteries and remember why we're here in this world of temporariness. But ultimately, that, that, that torch has got to come down, but you got to catch it before it goes too low. Before, if you don't ever go up, you disappear. It's going to fall to the ground. You can't get stuck in the temporariness. And so it's kind of a juggling act, not of multitasking, but juggling act of, of, of those moments of transcendence, going into that transcendence from the world, and then being present in the world. Even at the same time, I'll tell you a story, even though it's getting later and later. But the story is so good, I think it'll keep you up. The story is that was the, the, uh, it, was, it was a Hasidic rabbi, the third Chabad rabbi, his name was the Tzemach Tzedek, Menachem Mendel. And he had a bunch of sons. I forget how many. They were all great in their own right. But when he passed away, there was a question, which of the sons is going to take over? And what ended up happening is it splintered. And this one opened his and Kapus, and this one opened his and this one and this one. And there were different uh, different courts, different synagogues. But the Chabad line, starting with the Rebbe, Mittler Rebbe, went to the Rebbe Marash. And there's a story about one Hasid, one of the great respected Hasidim, who when the Tzemach Tzedek died, he said, I know you're all looking at the other brothers. You got to look at the youngest brother, the youngest son. His name is Shmuel, Rabbeinu Shmuel. And they said, why? I mean, we don't see anything, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to be, he was very, he was hidden. He was hidden Sadiq. And he said, let me tell you a story. It was one time that the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, he told a very deep mystical idea that seemed to contradict something in the Eitz Chaim, which is a work of the Arizal written by Rechaim Vital. And I went to all the brothers, the sons, to ask them to try to explain it to me. No one could explain it to me. They could understand it. As I'm walking home late at night, I passed this, the house of Rabbi Shmuel. The Rebbe Marash. And I see the light is on. 
all right, this got my attention. I look inside, I see that he's studying, and he's studying this book, the Eitz Chaim, the great mystical text of the Chaim Vital of Darizal. So I knock on the door. Who's there? I'm coming. A few minutes later, the door opens. He walks in, he sees the books are gone, and newspapers are covering the, paper, the table. The Rebbe Maharaj, Rabbi Shmuel, was hiding the fact that he was trying to hide the fact that he was studying Kabbalah. So this Hasid, Rabbi, uh, his name was Barisever, he says to, the, to Rabbi Shmuel, he says, I have this question in the Eitz Chaim, in this mystical text. Can you help me out? He says, you're asking me? Are you kidding me? Uh, what do I know from mysticism? He says, Rabbi, I have your number. I just saw through the window what you were studying. So here's the deal. You talk to me and answer my questions or else I'm going to tell the whole city what I saw and your secret's going to be out. I know that's important to you. So he blackmailed him. And uh, which is okay, you're allowed to do that to, to study Torah and blackmail people. Um, so he he said, Okay, he, the game was up. He, he he teaches him, he says, Sit down, he teaches him the Eitzchayim and explains it with such depth. And they're just talking for hours and hours throughout the night. And at the end of the whole night, it's it's amazing. I mean, you can imagine the sublime experience being taught the Eitzchayim. At the end of the whole thing, the young rabbi turns to him and says, um, he says to him, how many cups of tea did you have tonight? Because they were drinking tea throughout the night. He says, how many cups of tea did you have? How would I know how many cups of tea? We were talking the most sublime mystical ideas. I'm not paying attention to how many cups of tea I had. He says, uh, that's, that's a problem. He says, even when you're engaged in the most mystical texts, you got to know how many cups of tea you had. And he tells him how many cups of tea he had. <laughs> That's the idea. As deep and the, the, the juggling, as high as it goes, we always have to be aware. And in this world of temporariness, all of our material, you have to have environmental awareness. David Parrish taught me that expression. You got to have environmental awareness. You cannot get fly away into the clouds and get lost in the clouds. You got to know exactly what's going on in this material world. It's not truly mystical to be in the clouds. That's, that's a low level of mysticism. The highest level of mysticism to really be and know exactly how much tea you had. There was a similar story. The Rebbe once visited uh, the Seder. You know, there were several Seders in Crown Heights for the schools, for the boys' school, for the girls' school. Um, I was I mean, remembering that when the, there was many Persian Jews from Iran who came out during the revolution. Before the revolution, the Chabad was very involved in, in saving the students because it was a visa you could get the U.S., was allowing in students, so a special visa you get. So Rabbi Hecht from Crown Heights and the, the Rebbe's encouragement brought out thousands of, of, uh, of Iranian Jewish uh, students. And so there was a Seder for the, the Persian Jews. The Rebbe told them, make sure you have rice for the Seder because he knew the Ashkenazic uh, Chabad cooks are not going to think of making rice on Pesach, but the Persian Jews are Sephardic. They, they don't know Sephardic, but they, they don't have the law of, of, uh, of not eating rice. Excuse me. That was just an aside. But anyway, the Rebbe was going up to one of these seders to see, to check it out. And he, if he gets to the top of the steps on Kingston Avenue, the, the Farband, and he, and he turns to Rabbi David Raskin, who was one of the organizers of the seder. He says, how many steps did we just climb? <laughs> how many steps? Why, why would I know how many steps? He says, we just climbed 22 steps. That's the letters of the alphabet. There's 22 letters in the alphabet. Oh. What was he trying to teach him? No matter what, 
you have to be aware. You have to know exactly where you are. And it's not okay to be in the clouds. You got an environmental awareness. You got to know where you are and recognize that, yes, it's temporary and you have your moments of, of, of highness. But ultimately, the ultimate highness is being in that material world, in that world of temporariness and bringing permanence there. That's really all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. I need to go eat a bagel. <laughs> well, there you go. You eat it in the sukkah. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. <laughs> Drop your computer. I visited somebody today. It was first year ever having a sukkah. And he said, he said, this is amazing. I, I feel the spirituality of it. It's just, I can't, you know, I just, this is going to become an annual. Once you've done it once, you never go back. So, so Rabbi, I didn't realize when I was at, um, at Lafayette uh, Chabad, um, Rabbi Glick, was, he, we were in his sukkah and we shook the lulav. It was wonderful. And he was talking about building it. He had to clear there. The trees were hanging over too much. So he had to clear all of that back. I did not realize that you had to be able to see through to the sky, basically. Sean, you're a dangerous man. You're a dangerous man because you just triggered another lecture, but I'm not going to give it. <laughs> you, you, can start, you can start the clouds of glory at 11 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that... That is correct. You cannot have the, the schach has to grow from the ground, but it cannot be attached to the ground. So if you had a tree hanging over your sukkah, not only would not, not be considered kosher schach, but even if you had your kosher schach and you had a tree on top of that uh, hanging over it, your sukkah invalid. I sent you a picture. It's a pretty big sukkah he had going. Nice. And they did Shabbat dinner for all of the students. Beautiful. Um, in it. It was great. Um, I look forward to telling you some of the stories, which I'll refrain. I had the great merit this Sukkot, I think the first time in a while, that before, well, while we were building the Sukkah, I realized our neighbor's uh, fig tree was coming over and uh, hanging over part of the Sukkah. So I had the great merit of cutting it down, cutting, you know, cutting it back. And uh, that was fun. It's like, man, this is fun. Doing a mitzvah, cutting a tree, big mitzvah. Do you have, do you sleep? Have you slept in the sukkah? A bad custom is we do not sleep in the sukkah. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Thank you. Tradition. That's our tradition. Yeah. So it's tradition. It's not rabbinical or. Well, the, the mitzvah is, is pretty clear that you're, you're supposed to sleep in the sukkah. Talmud talks about it a lot. So clearly it's part of the mitzvah. However, it seems that, that Jews over time did not sleep in the sukkah. And definitely in certain, in certain places in the world. And the Shulchan Aruch already says that you know, many have the custom not to sleep in the sukkah. And... Um, you know, it tries to explain why that might be, you know, what, what is the justification? What's the legal justification for it? So um, in Chabad, it's a little bit more complicated. There's mystical ideas that play into it. Um, 
But the short answer is that Chabad custom is not to sleep in the sukkah. But if, but if you're out there spending time and you take a short power nap, if you will, then you slept in the sukkah. It's okay. That handles it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't done that. Even There is a, a there is a what I've heard, I don't remember if it's a legend or if it's actually, or, or you know whether what the source for this was. But I remember hearing that the Rebbe did not sleep through the nights of Sukkot because he didn't want to sleep in the sukkah and he didn't want to sleep outside of the sukkah. So the only way to do that is to stay up. And that has a source in the Talmud. The Talmud says that you know because of these celebrations throughout the, the nights of Sukkot, the Simchas Beis Shreva. They the people would not sleep. They would not go to sleep because it was just how could you sleep? It was like fireworks going on, spiritual fireworks, and so people did not sleep. So like, there's, there's eight days, seven days. Okay. They dozed off on each other's shoulders, so they I guess they did get a little bit of sleep, but they did not go to sleep for seven days. That'll help you get past your ego. Huh. That will help you get past your ego. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Break down. Sure. Break things down. Open you I up. I wonder, wonder if that has something to do with the power of this time getting through. The lack of sleep breaks down the barriers to let it come in. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Right, right. Was that what you are saying, Bill? I didn't understand. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. that's what Bill was saying. Yeah, I, I found that happening even on, on uh, my my. I'm not hearing you as well tonight, Bill. I'm sorry. Even on Yom Kippur, I found that happening as it went longer and longer. I felt letting go of that ego stuff. It was actually pretty very profound for me. That's and it. Some kind of kind of effect. It went that longer and longer. Your ego couldn't keep tensing against that, trying to hold on. I have to open to something. That's a great point. That's a great point. Get the ego out of the way. Get everything out of the way, and let the power of it come in. Let go, my ego. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. 